Welcome back to Digital Health Today, the place to be to get the insights of leaders making the healthcare of tomorrow available today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall, and boy, is it good to be back on the mic and bringing you this special episode of Digital Health Today 360. Why is this episode special? Well, I'm going to tell you why. One of the things that I wanted to do when I first started Digital Health Today is create a space where people can learn about great innovation that can really improve the health of both individuals and entire populations, whether it was N equals 1 or N equals 7.4 billion people. Now, over the years as I've been creating my show, I've also had the opportunity to expand and serve the health community in other ways. Along with my colleagues at Mission Based Media, we've created other resources to share information like Health Podcast Network, which now has about 100 different health podcasts and about 13,000 different episodes. We also added new shows to Digital Health Today, such as the DTX podcast with Eugene Borahovich, where he dives in deep with the nascent digital therapeutics industry. And most recently, we created a library of podcasts called Health Unmuted, where we create and share audio stories to help people understand more about specific health conditions. For example, in June, we launched a five-part miniseries about Alzheimer's disease. And this month, in July, we'll launch a seven-part miniseries about Parkinson's disease. We have about 50 different topics identified, so a lot more is coming. Now, all this has given me a chance to experiment with different formats, styles, content, creators, and audiences. And it's also made me realize how much I love hosting this show. It's also made me more aware than ever that there is so much more that needs to be shared. So in this special episode, as I fire up the recording studio and look forward to bringing you some great conversations with guests over the coming weeks and months, I thought I'd stand aside and invite another podcaster who is doing some outstanding work in an area that needs much more attention. Georgie Kovacs is the founder and host of FemPower Health, the go-to resource for all things women's health, serving women, their providers, and companies looking to build and improve on products for women. Georgie is really open about her firsthand experience with infertility and endometriosis. And with all that experience, she was motivated to start a podcast in the middle of COVID as a single parent. Now, if that's not passion, I don't know what is. You can find her show, FemPower Health, on Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. We'll also have a link to it in the show notes, and you can look it up by searching for FemPower Health, or the URL is fempower-health.com. Now, in this episode, Georgie spoke with Dr. Michal Elevitz. Dr. Elevitz is the Distinguished Professor in Women's Health at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, and she's also the Chief Medical Advisor at a company called Mirvi. Mirvi, that's M-I-R-V-I-E, Mirvi, is creating the first RNA-based platform to predict pregnancy complications. And when it comes to women's health, I've been astonished at the tremendous need for improvement, funding, and resources. And at the same time, I've also seen some incredible innovation that is happening that needs more attention, more awareness, and more funding. Despite the U.S. having the highest maternal mortality rate among developed countries, health risks in pregnancy have remained understudied, underfunded, and underserved. Pregnancy complications such as preeclampsia, preterm birth, and gestational diabetes affect one in five women. These complications have been happening for thousands of years, and yet today, right now, there's no accurate way to predict them before symptoms appear. So both moms and babies are often in crisis mode when diagnosed in their third trimester. In their conversation, Georgie and Dr. Elevitz explain one of these complications, preeclampsia, and explore how better screening can help. 
Let me know what you think of this episode. Do you want more women's health topics? Do you want more guest hosts? Do you want to be a guest host? Drop me a line at host at digitalhealthtoday.com. I'm really pleased to bring you this special episode, and I'm also really excited about what we have coming next. So be sure to hit follow on your favorite podcast app. But right now, let's jump into the conversation with Georgie Kovacs and Dr. Michal Elevitz. It is so nice to connect with you today and talk about pregnancy complications, which we all want to avoid. So before we dive into the discussion, why don't you start out by introducing yourself? My name is Michal Elevitz. I'm a physician scientist at the University of Pennsylvania. I also serve as the chief medical advisor for Mirvi, and my whole career in life has been focused on trying to stop pregnancy complications, and it's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. I interviewed Dr. Joanne Stone from Mount Sinai about a year ago, actually. I contacted her to talk about pregnancy complications, and one of the items that we discussed is preeclampsia. And so why don't we dive into talking about preeclampsia? Tell us what it is and the prevalence and who is impacted. I appreciate you asking the question because I think in general, people do not understand the impact of pregnancy complications on the outcome for the mom and for the baby. And it's not talked about enough. Preeclampsia is this really unique disease that only happens in the setting of a pregnancy and is believed to be predicated on the placenta not working. So what happens in preeclampsia is that it affects the mom's blood pressure, but can also affect how her kidneys work, how her blood works, how multiple systems work. The most severe cases of preeclampsia are when a woman actually has a seizure. So that's called eclampsia. But preeclampsia causes not just pregnancy complications. Once a woman has had a preeclampsia in any of her pregnancies, her risk for cardiovascular disease for her lifetime are greatly increased. So again, it's really not just this pregnancy-only disease. It affects moms, babies, and their families for a lifetime. And I know that we don't attend to that enough. So we know it's a complication, but like what is actually happening? And are there certain signs and also effects of what actually happens? Because it can be deadly. It's very dangerous. Preeclampsia is one of the leading drivers of maternal morbidity and mortality in the world. So preeclampsia, the signs are pretty easy, though they're a little bit nonspecific. So it's blood pressure elevation. It's having protein in your urine, which really just means that your kidneys are not functioning the way they should. And then it can be in its severe forms where your liver doesn't function well and your blood doesn't clot well. Those are the severe forms. The leading drivers of preeclampsia or what causes it remains a mystery. We have some ideas. We know the placenta not working well does it. We know that there's an increase of factors that raise blood pressure. But you know, 100 years ago, this disease was called toxemia because the idea was there must be a toxin in the blood that's affecting all of these different systems in the mom. And unfortunately, because of a lack of funding and a lack of attention to pregnancy diseases, we don't know much more than we called it toxemia. So I can't fully answer what is the drivers of it. I know the signs of symptoms, and I know it's harmful to mom throughout her life. But beyond that, we're at an obstacle. We, we don't really know. And so if we know the signs and symptoms, and a lot of them are nonspecific, where are we today with predicting preeclampsia and some of these other complications? So what I want to be clear is while the clinical symptoms of preeclampsia are nonspecific, they're very easy to also diagnose. So if a woman comes in and doesn't feel well, or even for her routine visit, 
a blood pressure is not hard to take, right? So if a blood pressure is, for example, 170 over 100, we know she has some pregnancy hypertensive disease, right? But the question is not to pick it up at the time of that blood pressure. The ideal, what's really going to make a difference for women is to be able to pick that up months before it even occurs. That's the goal. That's what we really want to get to. And right now that doesn't exist. The Mirvi RNA platform speaks to that need and the idea that there's a biological signal that has to be there months ahead of time and that we can use innovation to now pick that up way before the woman presents with elevated blood pressure. So the idea is if you can pick up those early signals that are happening in the mom, the placenta, even the baby, if you can pick them up and understand the biology, the drivers of preeclampsia or any pregnancy adverse outcome, you can then identify who's at risk, which we are not able to do, and then begin to tailor therapeutics that actually stop the disease from happening, not lessen its symptoms. We want to stop it. The idea here is prevention. So tell us about the science behind being able to look at these predictive factors. So for pregnancy, we are limited in being able to sample the tissues that are important. So we can't, during a pregnancy, we can't and we shouldn't be biopsying the placenta or getting some sample from the amniotic fluid. So most of these things are invasive and you don't want to risk a pregnancy to gain that knowledge. But because of that, we actually don't have knowledge about what the fetus, the placenta and in the uterus are doing early in pregnancy this lack of funding or attention to pregnancy health, we really haven't applied innovation, medical innovation, scientific innovation to pregnancy health. This cell-free RNA platform that Mirvi is leveraging is able to say what is happening at these tissues in a non-invasive way. So our placentas, the baby, and again, the uterus are constantly changing, right? At the cellular level, things are happening. That cellular information is then released into the maternal blood. And you can then take it and say, what is happening at these tissues that I can't access? And by doing that, you can now say, is this a normal process? Is this an abnormal process? And what about these processes are leading to disease and can they identify who's at risk? So it's really for the first time taking this innovation and being able to say what we can tell at these tissues that are not reachable by traditional means during a pregnancy. Can you differentiate between what you were just talking about that Mirvi is testing versus what people may see for carrier screening or the non-invasive prenatal testing? So absolutely. And I appreciate the opportunity to really dissect these two out. So the, the genetic screening or the prenatal testing where women are being offered to look at either, as you said, for carrier diseases or for trisomy 21, or what we more commonly known as Down syndrome, is that is measuring what's called cell-free DNA. So it's DNA floating around in maternal blood, which happens to anyone when they're pregnant. Part of that fetal DNA gets into our blood, and by the way, stays there. So when you take the DNA, it says, what is happening? What does the fetal DNA look like? So is there trisomy 21? Is there Down syndrome? Is there a carrier disease, a autosomal recessive disease that people are doing genetic screening for. That is different, right? That is more stable than the cell-free RNA. The cell-free RNA, again, released from the cell, constantly changes. So it's not a stable thing we're looking at. When we take the blood and look at the cell-free RNA, that changes over time. So you're able to look at the active expression going on in those tissues. Got it. And so if you were to get this one, is it a blood test? And two, because it's looking at change, do you need to take it like every six weeks during your pregnancy? How does that work? 
So it is a blood test. So it's blood just drawn like a regular blood draw from maternal, from the mom. It is the MIRV platform that we've looked at right now is at one time point. So there may be some advantage to looking over time. But what we really want to attend to first is can we detect early and once so we can begin to think about identifying who's at risk and then applying therapeutics. The issue with a blood test that are recurrent is that you're likely going to miss that window of therapy. So the idea is early and once identify who's at risk as well as attend to the underlying biology. Okay. And so right now we've talked about preeclampsia and I want to finish this thought. So I'm going to be a pain on this one, which is you've been tested, you're at risk. So what are the treatments? Is it you know as simple as just getting your blood pressure checked and, and then if it's a certain level, you go in and then if you go in, do you take a medicine? What is it? So right now, the United States Task Force talks about giving a baby aspirin, which is 81 milligrams. It's a different dose in Europe. That's what's used in the U.S. to prevent preeclampsia. And there's a lot of debate about this because in the studies, if you take all the studies together, they show benefit in, quote, high-risk groups. But again, what are those high-risk groups? They're either based on, to be honest, somewhat biased clinical risk factors or prior history of preeclampsia. But again, that misses a lot of women who are at risk. If you had this blood test, and let's just take first-time moms who could not have had that outcome, right? They're first-time moms. If you could apply a test to them and say early on they're at risk, the first really low-hanging fruit is aspirin could work for them. It's an easy therapeutic. There are some people who would offer you should do this in all of them, but there's risk from just giving medication for no indication. So the idea of being able to screen and give a low-hanging fruit like baby aspirin, but even to your point, blood pressure medication, right? There's new data that we've learned from the pandemic that most women don't need to come to the hospital and get seen all the time. But the negative to that is, are we missing women who have hypertensive disease and are we finding them too late? So even just rolling out something simple as home blood pressure monitoring is such an easy lift and something we prove we can do from the pandemic. To identify who's at risk and be able to offer that more increased surveillance for blood pressure is really easy and may prevent maternal morbidity or presenting with severe disease, which should be all of our goal. Right. No, absolutely. So then I guess as people are listening, they may ask this question, which is, and as you may notice, I like to ask it in every single different way just to make sure we've got it covered. Um, So, you know, we have this test that you can take with MIRV, but then we also have the blood pressure cuffs. So what's the difference? Should we just have blood pressure cuffs? Like what is the the benefit of having this, this blood test over that? We've shown that blood pressure alone in predicting is not enough and it doesn't sufficiently identify who's at risk, right? You can be normotensive or have normal blood pressure all the way through your pregnancy and then present being 190 over 100. So the ideas of measuring blood pressure and those are at risk is actually, you're already saying, I think you're at risk for the disease. That's different than just saying, I'm using that to predict risk. Very different things. I'm glad I asked then. Okay, we started with preeclampsia. So what do you see as the, the future of where the science may go with these testing? So I think we have huge potential here right? The idea that we have now used innovation to say, what is happening at these tissues we can't access, right? What is the placenta doing that's different from normal pregnancy progression? What is the uterus doing? What is the fetus, what is the fetus sending us in terms of a signal of what's okay or what's not okay? That we can do that now without being invasive, that we can actually say what's happening biologically, right? What's happening at all these tissues across pregnancy, and how that might be different in women who are at risk just opens up this whole new world of being able to predict and understand 
equally as important, pregnancy complications. So to me, in my world, that means preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, preterm birth. So I've spent 20 years focused on preterm birth. And it is just an untenable burden on these children and their families. And to be able to say who's at risk and why just opens up this whole new paradigm to think about how we prevent these diseases. So when it comes to a test like this, you know, one of the things that I find really interesting in the healthcare field is then how word spreads that something like this is available. Like I remember I spoke with ACOG last year, they had written an updated version of their book around pregnancy for all the different phases of your pregnancy. And one of the things in there that I spoke to them about is the new guidelines around having a visit with your doctor three weeks after you've given birth rather than waiting for six weeks. And I was like, do all the doctors know this? Do the insurance companies know this? Like who knows this? And the, the response was, it's a question on their exam. I'm like, really? I'm a, I come from a training background and I can tell you one question on an exam is not a way to change behavior. So because I know how the system works and the complications, I think it's important to have the reality check of, okay, a test like this is available. Is it like with most things, you need a massive sales force to educate healthcare practitioners? Is it something that's known? Do the consumers have to ask for it? And, and then what about coverage as well? Like, where are we with, with that? So I think you are asking excellent questions and things that women should be asking all the time about their healthcare. In my role as a physician scientist, I can only attend to some of them, right? As a physician and as a mom and as a scientist, information should be readily shared. There's been a lack of transparency in general as far as data, as far as innovation, and as far as access. As far as though specifically about the Mirvi platform, right now it's all in research development. So it's difficult for me to speak beyond that. But I would say for research development, some of the things that I have taken and an approach because I very much believe in equity as far as the test availability and as far as that it works in all populations. So to attend to that, our advisory board has, in my mind, some of the top leaders in the field who this is their goal. Their goal is to improve pregnancy health and to make it known what does and does not work. So the other thing that we have attended to is creating a collaborative that where the ongoing studies to look at how this platform can work across populations really represents a diverse racial and geographic communities across the United States so that we really are making sure this CFRNA platform works for all these populations and that it can be utilized for any woman so that we can identify those at greatest risk. No, and that's important, especially with the healthcare disparities that we're seeing. I mean, I think in COVID, the the numbers just really blew up for those in some of the subpopulations. That's really great to see. What's really interesting in the maternal health space is it is exploding. I mean, all of femtech is exploding and there's so many different companies. You've got telehealth, folks that are looking at women wearing fetal monitors all the time and now at home blood pressure cuffs and you name it. And it's wonderful, but it's overwhelming. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how this space is evolving and either concerns that you want to make sure people are aware of, or even just the excitement that you have over it? 
On one hand, I am so excited. I never thought in 20 years I'd hear femtech is blowing up, right? Maternal health is blowing up. Like that's music to my ears. I've been doing this for 21 years and been screaming into the void, please get interested in pregnancy. Please get interested in women's health. But it does give me pause because what cannot happen is that these efforts happen without rigorous data, that they don't happen with an equitable diverse group of people and experts making part of the decisions and input so that the science is real. Women deserve better and they definitely deserve this blow up of interest, but it should be done in a rigorous manner with thought that we don't want to just give women a lot of tests that don't improve their outcomes, right? That, that should not be where the field goes. And I think the really important thing is that we need to make sure, and I put the burden on industry, NIH, academia, and individuals, there has to be silos broken down. Everyone cannot be doing this in their own little universe. If we want to advance women's health, if we want to advance pregnancy health, we need to be partnering. We need to be working together. And this has been one of my goals as both a physician scientist with my own research program and with Mirvi, that we need to bring all these teams together if we actually care about changing women's health. I agree. What's your greatest hope now that we have this science that you've been working on what do you, what is your like next step and greatest hope for what you guys are doing or even for women? <sighs> I have a lot of hopes. My greatest hope is that the global universe realizes that we are over 50% of the population and our health matters. And by doing that, we invest from both NIH, from industry, from nonprofits, that we invest in understanding the drivers of health and disease in women and in pregnancy. And by doing that, we actually create new avenues to improve outcomes. And that's my hope. That's awesome. So how can people get in touch with you and keep in touch with what's happening with Mirvi? So you can follow both Mirvi and me personally on Twitter. You can also locate both of us on LinkedIn. The website is mirvi.com, M-I-R-V-I-E.com. The Twitter handle is mirvi.dx. My personal Twitter is at docelevitz. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was a really, really interesting conversation. And I know it will be so informative to clinicians, the people who are building these products and, and to women as well. So thank you so much for everything that, that you guys are doing for women's health. Thank you, Georgie. Thank you for your time and your interest. I do so appreciate it on a personal and professional level. Thanks for tuning into this special episode of Digital Health Today 360 with Georgie Kovacs of FemPower Health and Dr. Michal Elevitz of both the University of Pennsylvania and Mervy. We have more conversations with great thought leaders coming up, so be sure to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast app. And let me know, what did you think of this episode? Drop me a line at host at digitalhealthtoday.com. That's all for now. Until next time, keep on innovating.